And speaking of diving deeper, uh, we've been doing that for these last few weeks as we as a church have been walking through the Gospel of John. Now, I'll just tell you up front, I've known we were going to be going through John for the better part of the last two or three months. Mark and I had a conversation in the fall about it, and I have been so unbelievably excited about that. Um, to, to put my cards on the table, my wife and I both have Gospel of John tattoos. That's how committed we are to John. Um, obviously, all scriptures God breathed, and we'll find room for the other 65 books uh, when there's more money to buy more tattoos. But, but we're really, really committed to John. It's, it's an incredible portion of scripture. I'm so glad we're walking through it as a church. But I'll tell you that one of, the, one of my fears whenever we approach John is that unfortunately, Christian culture has kind of cut John down to size. Uh, we, we have viewed John as maybe an entry-level book, a, a beginner's way into the Christian faith. It's not uncommon for us to see John as the sort of book that somebody who is new to Christianity reads when they're just starting off, and then eventually they move on to bigger and deeper and more complicated books. Start with John, and then we'll work our way up to Romans, and then maybe, maybe if you're like a super Christian, then we'll work our way up to Revelation. That's the really deep book. Side note, most people read Revelation wrong anyways. Talk to Jerry Greaves about the legitimate ways Christians can read Revelation. But I don't think that's true. I don't think John is some sort of a beginner's introduction to Christianity. Certainly there is simplicity to John, but when we think of it as this sort of entry-level book, the, the kids' table, before you move to the grown-ups' table at Christmas, we're doing it a disservice. But that idea is pretty deeply entrenched. I know when... My family first came to Bay Life long before Mark or Tom or most of our staff were here. Um, I, I walked into the lobby of the building and I was handed a copy of the Gospel of John. This was like 2001, 2002. And somebody told me, if you're new to the Bible, start with this. Now this copy of the Gospel of John had awful, awful like Microsoft clip art on the front of it. It looked like it was designed by a toddler. <laughs> But the idea was, this is where you start. And this idea is reinforced all around us in culture. Back when there were still crowds at sporting events, uh, you couldn't watch a Super Bowl without seeing somebody holding a sign that said John 3.16 on it. And that's the most popular verse in the whole Bible. It's, it's the verse that we use to get people started. I thought this way for a long time, but, but the, the facade began to crack a couple of years ago. I had a friend who was interested in Christianity and, and wanted to read the Bible but didn't know where to start, and so he said, hey, I know you're like a priest or something like that, and I said, not quite, but close. <laughs> um, and he said, tell me where to start in Scripture. And I said, let's start with John. Why don't you read John chapter 1, you come back to me next week, and we'll just discuss what what stood out to you, what you had questions about. And here, I'm thinking this will be an easy place to start. He, he comes back a week later and he says, man, I'm not like trying to disparage what you believe or anything, but um, who is this word person and what does he have to do with Jesus? Like I thought Jesus was like the, the superhero in all these stories. What's the word got to do with anything? And in that moment, I realized John is not necessarily an easy book to just pick up without any sort of guidance. We've walked through this opening chapter of John together as a church in the last few weeks. There's some complex ideas. Certainly, 
John has, for many people, been their first introduction to Jesus. It's been their gateway into the Christian life. But it goes far beyond a simple beginner's manual. I love the way that Canadian theologian Bruce Milne puts it. He says, John is kind of like a pool, a pool that is shallow enough on one end that a child can wade into it. But on the other end, it's deep enough to drown an elephant. Now, over the years, I've had the opportunity to to teach through John a couple times, and every time it comes time to name the sermon, I always propose that we call the sermon series Drowning the Elephant, and nobody says yes to that. Apparently, it's off-brand. Similarly, Mark wasn't stoked on the idea in these last couple weeks. Of course, John's gospel, like the other three, is interested in telling us the story of Jesus. John's gospel is interested in showing us the life and the death and resurrection of this man that Christians have placed their hope and their confidence in. But unlike the other gospels, John does it from a slightly different angle. And this is likely because of the fact that John wrote last. Uh, John's gospel is unanimously agreed upon to be the last gospel written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are composed sometime between 50 and 80 AD. John is sometime between 90 and 100 AD. And John has no interest in sort of retelling the exact same facets of Jesus' story that the other apostles and authors of the Gospels are interested in. John's Gospel is also different because John was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was closer to Jesus than Peter, who provides the foundation for Mark, or Matthew, the tax collector, who writes the Gospel. Luke interviews eyewitnesses, but John, John was there, and John was in Jesus' inner circle. But John also assumes you've read the other Gospels. By the time he writes, it's been 20 or 30 years. They're in circulation in the early Christian community. He assumes that you know what's been written before. A couple years ago, when the the first of the Avengers movies came out, the uh, Infinity War, right? That's what it is? I don't know. I watch the Marvel movies. I don't really pay attention to it. Um, So I, I brought my brother with me to see Infinity War. And my brother has not watched a single Marvel movie. Um, He agrees with Martin Scorsese that they're not actually film. They're like a carnival put in cinemagraphic form. Uh, I agree with Martin Scorsese too. It's not art. Anyways, side note. Um, I went to see, I just lost half the room, I'm sure. Um, I went to see Infinity War. I brought my brother with me. He hadn't watched any of the movies. And he walked out going, I mean, that was fine, but like, who are any of these people? You know, who is Ant-Man and, and who, who is like the, the wizard that casts spells with his hands? Like what's going on? All he knew was Spider-Man and that's because we read the comics growing up as kids. Why? Because this movie assumes that you've seen the previous ones. It assumes that you have some familiarity with the universe and the things that have taken place. John does the same thing in his gospel. There's numerous instances in the gospel of John where John references things that aren't in his gospel, they're in the other ones. So great example of this comes in John chapter three, verses 22 through 24. They're talking about John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, who we'll talk about today. And John, the apostle, says in parentheses, all this stuff I'm telling you about, it took place before John the Baptist was thrown into prison. Fun fact, John the Baptist is never thrown into prison in John's gospel. John just stops talking about him. But you know where John is thrown into prison is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You get the story of John's imprisonment and his execution and the crisis of faith that he experiences during his time in jail. John, the apostle, assumes you know all that stuff. 
Here's something that happened before he was thrown in prison. The, the passage that we'll find ourselves in this morning, John chapter one, verses 29 through to 34, is similar in that regard. John is assuming that you already know the story of Jesus and he's filling in the blanks. But before we dive into this text, just a quick reminder of where we've come from. John begins his story, chapter one, verse one, in the beginning. And in the beginning is the word. The word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through him and nothing was made that wasn't made by and through him. And this word becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. He starts the story of Jesus in eternity past to to let us know that this person, Jesus, who entered into time and space is timeless and eternal. What we celebrate in Christmas is that he takes on flesh to become like us, to dwell among us. And then John the Apostle fast forwards 30 years into Jesus' life and ministry and he zooms in on John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And he tells us about an interaction that he had with the religious leaders during his day. Now, maybe you grew up in the church, and so you've heard about John the Baptist. And maybe you have in your mind sort of a Veggie Tales picture of John. Or maybe you're more old school than that. You have like a felt board John the Baptist uh, from Sunday school. But I'm just going to tell you, most of what you have in your mind doesn't do justice to how weird John the Baptist actually was. John the Baptist is a profoundly weird figure in the Bible. I mean, think about this. He he spends most of his time in the wilderness, probably living in a cave somewhere, clothed in camel's hair, which is not comfortable, eating locust and wild honey, which I'm sure gave him great morning breath. And occasionally, he emerges from the wilderness to tell all of the establishment figures, all the figures in power, you are destined for destruction unless you repent. And then he just fades back into the wilderness. Now, now maybe you hear that and you go, well, that was back then. That was pre-iPhone. Things were different. People were, you know, culture was different back then. So let me just put this to rest. John was weird even back then. Like, none of this was normal, even in John's day. He's so strange that he calls the attention of the religious authorities who confront him. Mark talked about that last week. And then after the events that take place previously in chapter one, we come to our passage. It says this, the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God." So after John's confrontation with the religious leaders that that Mark taught last week, we we jump one day ahead. I'm going to try and move out of the stream of this fan. I don't know if you can hear it blowing on my microphone. Okay, I think I'm I'm out of the line of fire. Okay, so after the confrontation with the religious leaders, John sees Jesus. Jesus is walking towards him, and he takes this opportunity to cry out to anyone who will listen. He says, behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of 
the world. Now, now the English translation here doesn't actually do justice to the, the particularity of the Greek. If, if you were to translate the Greek from John 1, 29 through 34, the, the literal translation of the Greek into English is, look, the lamb of the God, the one who is taking away the sin of the world. But that doesn't really render well in English. It feels a little bit strange. You want to know more about Bible translations, sign up for the foundations class. But I love what uh, one New Testament theologian says about this passage. He says that this, this declaration of John is strangely particular. Right? Jesus is not just a lamb of God. He's the lamb of God, the only one. And he's not just the lamb of one God among many. He's the lamb of the God, the only God. And his salvation isn't just for Israel or a particular part of the world. He is the only lamb of the only God whose salvation takes away the sins of the whole of the world. It's about the exclusivity of Christ. John holds out in no uncertain terms. Jesus is the only lamb of the only God, and he is the only way that sin can be taken away. Now that probably feels strange to us. That may not sit well with us, and one of the reasons for that is that we live in what sociologists and philosophers call a pluralistic society. The basic idea is that we are in a moment, a, a unique moment in human history, where we are in contact now more than ever with people who think we're wrong about fundamental issues. All you have to do is open up your phone and Google, and you can encounter tens of thousands of different faiths, different opinions about the transcendence, the transcendent, rather. We feel the force of having all these options, and it becomes harder and harder for us to choose. It becomes harder for us to pick one and say, this is it, this is the answer, this is the only way because we're constantly conscious of the fact that there are other people who say, no, it's not, my way works. Um, maybe you've felt the force of this in your own life. Think back to when you were taking tests back in school, or maybe you're in school right now, um, specifically multiple choice tests. Let me first say that anytime I find out that I'm taking a multiple choice test, I feel like the Lord has shown me a special kindness because it is so much easier for me than a fill in the blank. I'm better at recognizing names than remembering names. But there are these certain teachers who have it out for their students who even take the, the special grace of a multiple choice test and they turn it into a form of judgment. So, so think back, and maybe you're one of those teachers. Um, think back to first or second grade, you get a question like, who is the first president of the United States? That's easy enough you know, first or second grade, I know his name starts with George. And I don't know, I mean, I'll probably recognize his last name. And then you get the teacher who gives you these options. Is it A, George Bush? Is it B, Barack Obama? Is it C, George Washington? Is it D, John Adams? Is it E, George Orwell? Is it F, George MacDonald? George Lopez? And on and on and on it goes. Okay, then your first or second grade mind starts to panic, right? Because you go... I knew it was a George, but there's a lot of Georges on this list. And if there were only two or three, then maybe I could pick, but as the list gets longer and longer until it's like a 26 full alphabet 
fill-in-the-blank, multiple-choice question, once that happens, you can find yourself becoming increasingly insecure about picking an answer. Why? Because with so many answers, the longer the list gets, with so many options, you start to worry about committing yourself to just one. You start to wonder whether there really is a right answer. This is what pluralism does to us in, in a social sense. We, we live in a, in a beautifully diverse country, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And so we have friends and neighbors who are Muslim. We have coworkers who are Hindu. We have classmates who are Buddhist. We have uh, family members who are atheists. And then we hear John say, Jesus is the lamb of the God who takes away the sins of the whole world. It's Jesus or nothing. And that can feel difficult. Yet, that is what the Bible tells us. That's the testimony of scripture. There is no other way to God but through his one and only son, Jesus. Now ultimately, this is kind of necessitated by the way that the Bible diagnoses the human condition. It could be no other way. Let me explain what I mean by that. The diagnosis sort of constrains what the solution is. I've mentioned this a a couple times before. Um, My dad was diagnosed with cancer back in the fall, and by God's grace, he has been receiving treatment and and doing really well. And his doctors are, are hopeful about his prognosis. Things are looking good. But when he first was diagnosed with cancer, the doctors gave him a course of treatment. They said, you will need eight rounds of chemotherapy, 28 days of radiation, and then we're going to have to reevaluate and see whether you'll need surgery after that or not. Now, hypothetically, let's suppose that my dad looked at the doctors and he said something to the effect of, I know that you think that your way of curing cancer is the only way of curing cancer, but I've got a different way that I think will work. I think the way that I'm going to tackle this is by increasing my water intake, changing my diet, and and getting more exercise. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, that's essentially what Steve Jobs of Apple did. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he said, I'm gonna eat organic food in the hopes of being healed because I think that this will work just as well as the doctor's prognosis of surgery, or diagnosis of surgery. And unfortunately, he lost his life. And many would say that it was entirely preventable had he chosen the cure of the doctor's recommended as opposed to going his own way. Right? We naturally understand this in the health world because the nature of the sickness constrains what can be seen as a viable cure. Like if you've got high cholesterol, water intake, watching your diet, exercise, that's all a viable way of dealing with that sickness. But diabetes is not cancer, is not a cold. They're different. Each religion offers its own diagnosis of the human condition. Here's what went wrong with people. And in light of that, here's how our particular tradition fixes it. Christianity says that what has gone wrong with humanity at its most fundamental level is sin. 
Sin is rebellion against God and his law, and it produces alienation from other human beings, from creation, and from our creator. And if the Bible is right in its diagnosis, if that is what has gone wrong with us, if that is the disease, then the only hope of salvation is someone who can take our sin away. And no amount of crystals, no amount of meditation, no amount of religious practice can do that. Only Jesus can take sin away. If the diagnosis of sin is correct, the only hope of cure is Christ. That's what John says. This is the lamb of the one and only God. He is the one who takes away sin. This is the cure. There's no other stream in which you can find life. But there's something specific that John witnessed that confirms for him that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who takes away sin. He says this in verse 32, John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John has had a specific encounter that convinces him of who Jesus is. And there, there's a couple of things that I think are important for us as we sort of unpack this passage, one of which is, is more of a side note than anything, but that one of the most compelling reasons to at least consider Christianity, if you're skeptical, somebody dragged you here, or you're watching online because your parents forced you to, one of the, one of the reasons you should at least consider Christianity is that the people closest to Jesus came to be convinced that he was the savior of the world. John is Jesus' cousin. And we don't know how close they were growing up, but we can assume that they at least knew each other. So let's run a thought experiment in light of that. Close your eyes and think of your cousins. You can think of one cousin, you can think of all of your cousins. Think about all of their virtues. Think about everything good about your cousin, every good and righteous thing they've ever done, every act of kindness. Maybe you can't think of any, maybe you had some bad cousins. Think about everything good about your cousin. Then open your eyes and tell me if you could look at them and say, they're the son of God. I'm gonna be real, I love my cousins. They're great. They are godly people. Never once in my life would I entertain the thought that they're the son of God. Not once. Never once would I think that any of them are the savior of the world. But that's what happens with John. He comes to be convinced that his cousin is the savior of the world. And there's one specific event that John has encountered that convinces him of this. He says that he saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus. And this is how he knew. And here is where John assumes, John the author of this gospel assumes, you've read the other gospels. Because this event, the spirit descending like a dove and resting on Jesus, it's not chronicled anywhere in John's gospel. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It takes place at Jesus' baptism. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he is baptized. He goes to his cousin, John, and asks to be baptized. And John is kind of not sure about it. He says, you should probably be baptizing me. I would imagine Jesus was the good kid growing up, and John probably had a rebellious streak in him. But eventually, John relents, chooses to baptize Jesus. Jesus is submerged in the water, and as he comes up, we're told in Mark's gospel that he saw heaven torn open. This is the language of Isaiah. And the spirit descending like a dove. 
And in this moment, he heard the voice of his father say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And there's a whole lot going on in the baptism of Jesus. Patterns in the Old Testament being played back out. Jesus is embodying the nation of Israel. He passes through the waters of baptism and immediately he's driven into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil to turn from God and worship Satan, which should sound at least a little bit familiar to you because Israel passes through the waters of the Red Sea and they're driven into the wilderness where they're tempted to worship idols. Jesus is re-embodying the story of Israel, succeeding where Israel has failed. But, but there's more going on than just that because Isaiah has said that the Messiah is the one on whom the spirit will rest and proclaim good news to the poor. So all of these prophecies are being fulfilled in the baptism of Jesus. It's why Christians throughout history have celebrated Christmas, Easter, the baptism of Jesus as a holiday because something significant is going on here. But there's one thing in particular I want to call your attention to. When the Spirit descends, both Jesus and John see the Spirit descend like a dove. Have you ever wondered why that is? Like if you jump ahead in your Bible to the book of Acts, when Jesus pours out the Spirit on the disciples, the Spirit descends like tongues of fire. So clearly, the Spirit is not committed to one particular look. Why a dove with Jesus? I think the roots are in the book of Genesis. Bear with me here. This is a little bit of a history lesson. Um, There are two floods in the book of Genesis. One happens in Genesis 1.1. We're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know what happens next. God begins to speak, and by his word, see John chapter one, he calls things into being that were not in being. He calls land to emerge from the water. He separates the waters above from the waters below. He separates the sea from the dry land. He causes the waters to swarm with living creatures. Creation is called forth from water. But if you've made it past day three of your Bible in a year plan, you know that things don't stay good. Which I hope you've made it past day three. That's like, come on. (laughs) Through our first father, Adam, sin enters the world, and with sin comes its corrupting power and influence. In the subsequent chapters, murder begins, and it happens within a family. It's not even stranger against stranger. It's brother against brother. Humanity gets more and more and more corrupt until you reach the latter parts of Genesis where humanity has grown so corrupt that the scriptures say God repented of ever making man. A couple years ago, we as a church were getting ready to preach through Genesis 1 through 11 which is kind of the opening section of the book. And Mark sent out an email and said, what, what should we call this sermon series? And I said, you should call it the downward spiral. <laughs> Another sermon idea that didn't make it through. <laughs> but things just keep getting worse until finally God comes against humanity in judgment. And what's his judgment? It's a flood. The windows of heaven are opened. The vaults of the deep are opened. 
Maybe you grew up hearing the story in Sunday school. Maybe you saw the movie, which was fine. But don't miss what's happening. The world starts submerged in water. And in judgment against wickedness, God sinks the world back into the water. This is him wiping the slate. This is him going back to Genesis 1.1. Humanity has gone, grown so wicked that he sinks it back into the water from which it came. The flood is decreation. He is unmaking the world in judgment. Save for one family, Noah and his children. God gives him the plans for an ark He shuts the door of the ark himself. Noah and his family spend 40 days living in the ark until Noah decides to see if the waters of judgment have subsided. He decides to see if any new creation has emerged from the wrath of God's flood. And so at first he sends out a raven. The raven flutters back and forth over the water and then he makes the decision to send out a dove. And the dove comes back with an olive branch in its beak, an, an implication that something new is emerging from under the flood of God's wrath. He waits a few more days, he releases the dove again, and the dove never comes back. Eventually, the ark comes to rest on a mountain. Noah and his family emerge. But the new world that has emerged from the waters of the flood is still corrupted by sin. You get a real clear picture of this. The first thing Noah does after he gets out of the ark is he plants a vineyard, makes wine, and gets drunk. That's not in the VeggieTales version of this story. He gets plastered as soon as he's out of the ark. As soon as God has made a promise to never flood the world again, Noah gets plastered. The world is still corrupted by sin. And in this metaphorical sense, That dove never lands. That dove continues to circle the globe looking for some new piece of creation that is not corrupted by Adam's fall. Until the baptism of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit descends, Jesus emerges out of the waters and the Spirit falls like a dove as if to say that this man is the beginning of God's sinless new creation, that he is the first to emerge from the waters that is truly new and without corruption, as if to say that this man is the one who will set things right. This is the beginning of the one true God dealing with sin and making all things new. And John sees this and he knows decisively that his cousin, Jesus, is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, the one that he has been preparing the way for. That's how he knows. But he knows for a specific reason. He knows because he says the one who sent him to baptize with water told him to be on the lookout for this particular event. And the the commentators are uh, unanimous in their agreement. The one who sends John to baptize is God himself. The father has told John to be on the lookout for the one on whom the spirit rests. And I think this is really important. This is really important for us. 
because it underscores the fact that John didn't come to Jesus on his own. John had spent his whole life growing up around Jesus, and it hadn't occurred to him that his cousin was the Messiah. No, the only way John sees Jesus for who he is is because the Father opens his eyes and says, this is how you'll know. God reveals it to him. He doesn't come to it on his own power. And the same thing is true of us now in our own day. Jesus will tell us later in John's gospel, no man comes unless the Father draws him. Every single time that somebody places their faith in Jesus and sees him for who he really is, in some sense, that is an act of God. And this this matters because I feel like so often we say things like, if only I could see the miracles the disciples saw, I would have more faith. Let me first say, I doubt that because the disciples saw the miracles and they didn't have enough faith. But, but in, in, in another sense, let me, let me say, you, you see greater miracles than the disciples ever saw on a weekly basis. On a weekly basis, when you assemble here in this room, when you join in online with your families, when you gather in whatever church you're a part of, if it rightly preaches the gospel, you are surrounded by people who were spiritually dead, enemies of God, whom the Father drew whose eyes the Spirit opened and who the Lamb of God removed sin from and raised them to walk in newness of life. That is miraculous. Salvation is miraculous in every sense. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek the, the miraculous intervention of God. I'm not a cessationist. If you want to know what that is, I'll talk to you later. I believe that the spiritual gifts operate. I believe that the miraculous happens. But don't look for those things to the exclusion of the miracle of salvation, which is foundational above all else. That God opens the eyes of the blind. That he raises the dead to life. And that they see Jesus for who he is, which can only happen through the drawing power of the Father and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Every time you gather with God's people, you're surrounded by the miraculous. Every time somebody's eyes are open to the Lamb of God, that same Jesus who emerged from the waters of baptism pours out his Spirit and sends them into the world to do what John did, to point to Christ and say, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So here's my prayer for us this morning and this week. If you don't yet know Jesus, if if you haven't yet been able to say, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I pray that today would be that day. I pray that the Father would draw you, that the Spirit would open your eyes and you would see him for who he is. And if you sense that that's that's happening in you right now, I would love to meet with you in the corner and pray with you and talk to you about what that looks like. We've got prayer partners in the back who would love to do the same, prayer partners online. But if you are a Christian, if you have come to believe this, my prayer is that the Spirit would drive you out into the world to point to Jesus and say, behold the lamb. That the spirit would open your lips to declare the truth of the gospel to a dying world who desperately needs to hear it. And that we would be a church committed and filled with people who have the spirit of John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your kindness, for your goodness 
for your mercy towards us. We're thankful that you have, out of love, sent Christ, our Lord, to take away our sins. And with Christ, you have poured out the Spirit so that we might walk in obedience. Father, fill our hearts with a passion for seeing others know you and experience the radical transforming power of the gospel. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And we say amen.